Amen. Take your copy of God's Word. Open it with me to where we last left off in Genesis uh, chapter 15. We'll be in the whole of Genesis chapter 15 this morning, continuing on uh, in the life of Abraham. Genesis 15. We seem to live in a world where people make and break promises all of the time. Uh, Every day that you even like use your debit card to buy something. You're making a promise to someone, a promise of payment. Every time you write a check, that's a promise of payment. Those of you who have mortgages on your house, you signed a whole lot of papers promising to pay off this loan. We, we deal in promises in all sorts of different ways. Politicians make and break promises to us all the time. Uh, commercials make for products, make promises about what the products will deliver for us. Uh, infomercials uh, may be chief among them. Um, the only one of which I think is delivered on all of its promises would be like OxyClean. That's a fantastic product. But so many times we see commercials that uh, make promises about products and, and don't fail to and, and fail to deliver on those promises. People make checks uh, against funds in their bank account that they don't have, and those checks bounce. It's a broken pro- promise. People default on their mortgages all the time. We, even as a society that makes promises constantly, are really good at also breaking promises. And I think it just shows that, that we don't necessarily take promises very seriously. But God in his word makes a lot of promises. And God in his word is faithful to keep all of his promises. In a world where we make and break promises constantly, we see a a contrast to that in the God of scripture who makes and does not break his promises. Here in Genesis 15, we will see God make an everlasting covenant. Uh, A bond in blood, a life and death promise with Abram to fulfill the promises that he's already given to Abram in chapter 12 and uh, 14 of offspring and of land and of blessing. We'll see in the text this morning that God counts as righteous. That means God counts uh, uh, those to be in right standing with him, those who place obedient faith in him, him who fulfills his promises. This morning, as we look at Genesis 15 and the two parts that are in it, I hope that we would leave this morning with confidence, a renewed sense of confidence and a sense of spiritual security about our salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, because that is a promise that God has made to save us through faith in Jesus. And it's a promise that he has not broken and he will not default on. As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, stand with me, would you, as we read Genesis 15. After these things, uh, the writer of Genesis, likely Moses, continues. Remember, we saw last week the these things that uh, come before chapter 15 were the battles that the Mesopotamian kings waged uh, uh, against the uh, kings of the Canaanite valley and uh, Abram's rescue of Lot. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and so a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. 
And he, the Lord, brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old. A female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, He cut them in half and he laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I've titled sermon this morning, Trust the Lord who makes good on his promise. Trust the Lord who makes good on his promise. And I want to pull out for us two uh, truths about who God is and how he deals with his people and application that goes along with each of those. And I want to do that uh, as we follow the, the, these two sort of parallel sections of chapter 15. Uh, the first section is verses 1 through 6, and the second, second section is verses 7 through 21. And each of these two sections of Genesis 15 follow the same pattern. And you see that in your worship guide in front of you. Uh, a pattern of uh, interaction between the Lord and Abram. Let's look at the first point I'd like for us to draw from the text this morning, and that is this, from verses 1 to 6, that God counts faith as righteousness. God counts faith as righteousness. And here we see the, the narrative cycle unfold. First, we have the word of the Lord in verse 1. The word of the Lord, which comes to Abram saying, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. I am your shield, the Lord says. This has a particularly significant meaning for Abram because Abram just went to battle against the Mesopotamian kings to rescue his, lot, his nephew Lot uh, as, a, uh, as a prisoner uh, of war in chapter 14. Abram just went to battle and came back victorious. And the Lord is saying to Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. This is a word of blessing to Abram. The object of Abram's blessing is the Lord himself. The Lord himself is the one that goes before Abram. The Lord himself is the one that protects Abram and leads him into battle successfully and, and guards all of Abram's life. The Lord is the object of Abram's blessing. Not the promises that the Lord has made. Not the future that the Lord has told Abram that he'll have. Not even the hope of the promises fulfilled. But the Lord himself is the blessing of Abram. Blessing to Abram. 
The word of the Lord comes to Abram in verse 1, but then in verses 2 and 3, even after this, this word of confidence, this word of blessing, a uh, declaration of who God is to Abram, Abram responds with kind of a question. His response is, I am childless. The Lord says, I am your shield, and Abram responds, I am childless. Abram says, Lord, what will you give me? I continue without a child. Abram's question here in verse 2, Lord, what will you give me? should not be taken to mean that Abram does not believe God or that Abram even necessarily doubts God's promises. I I don't think that that is what's happening here. Rather, Abram is saying, I think, Lord, I hear you. I trust you. But when will this come to pass? You've made a promise and, and, and not all of this has come to fruition yet. I still don't have, have a child. So maybe I've misunderstood. So, so here's what, what I'll do, Lord. I'll, I'll just appoint a servant in my house as my heir. And then, and then he'll be the offspring that, that will, you know, that you can count, you know, toward me. Abram's response is not one of doubt, but it's one of genuine longing and genuine curiosity as to how God will bring out, uh, bring about the promise that he's made of offspring and, and land and blessing. Abram says, God, I, if there's a different way that you're trying to answer this, well, let me, let me provide maybe a source for that. And I'll just, I'll just adopt this servant of mine, Eliezer. He's a good guy. I trust him with my money. Uh, you count him as my son and I'll give all of my stuff to him and he'll be the way that you'll bless me. The Lord responds in verses 4 and 5 with with action. We see the word of the Lord in verse 1, the response of Abram in verses 2 and 3. Then the action of the Lord in verses 4 and 5, a response to Abram's response. And the action of the Lord is to say, no, Abram, I really will give you innumerable offspring. As Abram is asking this question, Lord, when will this happen? I'll just make an heir or I'll just make Eliezer my heir. And we can, we can just go about it this way. The Lord wonderfully interrupts Abram to say, no, Abram, your plans are not my plans. When I said I would give you a child, I meant I would give you a child. Not that I wanted you to, to adopt a, a servant in your house as your heir. I meant what I said, and I'm going to be good to my promise. This man will not be your heir. Your own son will. And then God takes Abram outside to show him the vastness of the Milky Way at night. And he says, Abram, look up, count the stars if you can. Astronomers tell us that the Milky Way galaxy alone contains some 250 billion stars, give or take 150 billion on a really clear night with no invading light pollution, if you go outside, there's, there's no lights, you're just in the, the most pitch dark place you can be on earth, you are likely to see some 9,000 stars in the night sky. But we also know that as the earth spins through the night, some stars will disappear on the horizon and new ones will appear on, a, uh, appear on another horizon. The stars, like the dust of the earth, are innumerable by human capacity. Even our best estimates are are enormous estimates, 250 billion, give or take 150 billion. Astronomers are saying there's, there's probably at least 250 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, but we can't really count them all. We might be off by as much as half. In light of all of this, just the, the innumerable number of the stars in the night sky, the weight of the promise that God has given to Abram of offspring for generations now begins to have its full effect in Abram's eyes. God's already told Abram once to, to count the grains of sand on the earth if he could. Now he tells him to count the stars of the sky if you can. Now, Abram, look, really seriously, I'm going to make this happen. 
And so see here, church, just the wonderful grace and patience that the Lord has with Abram. When Abram wonders and questions and isn't sure how God is going to work out the promises that he's made, the Lord does not discipline Abram or rebuke him harshly, but instead he lovingly, caringly reaffirms his promise and takes him outside to show him the stars to say, this many, this many descendants, Abram, this many. And so our text concludes, or the first half of our text concludes in verse 6 with this. Abram believes the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteous. A righteousness. The verse, verse 6 of chapter 15, reads literally in Hebrew, Abram believed in, believed on the Lord, and he credited to him righteousness. Now this... This doctrine, this, this long-standing teaching of the church, righteousness by faith and not by works, is a uniquely biblical doctrine. I know some, some of you may be hearing that word doctrine and immediately you're kind of put off because you think doctrine is this, this wooden, uh, rigid, stale uh, teaching of the church that has no real... Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, in particular significance to your life, that doctrine is this thing that old stuffy Christians do and know. But doctrine is a beautiful, wonderful thing. The, the doctrines of Scripture are the, are the foundation for our faith. These, these timeless, uh, eternal, non-changing truths of God from His Word are the things that give our faith real life and the ability to rest upon. So when I say that righteousness by faith is a biblical doctrine, don't be put off, get excited. Righteousness by faith, this uniquely biblical doctrine, is absolutely central to our theology, to our understanding of who God is and how he deals with, how he relates to we who are sinners in need of righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 is itself quoted in several places throughout the New Testament. You know, I have a, uh, in Genesis 15, verse 6, I have a little footnote uh, uh, there that, that points me to several other places in Scripture. Some in Romans, some in Galatians, one in the Psalms. Genesis 15, 6 is quoted in several other places in the New Testament as evidence that salvation from sin, from our rebellion against God, through repentance and faith in Jesus, who is the descendant of Abraham, the son of God, has always been God's plan. Righteousness by faith and not by works has always been how God has dealt with sinners. It's always been how God has made sinners to be in right standing with him. One of these footnotes that you'll probably find in, in your Bible is uh, from Genesis chapter, or Romans, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul cites Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord and he was credited to him as righteousness. But after that, Paul goes on, goes on in Romans 4, verses 20 through 25 to say this. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, Paul says, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. This is not just how God deals with Abram. This is how God deals with every single one of us. That he puts us into right standing with him. He grants us forgiveness of sins and justification with him as we place faith in Jesus Christ. 
So the application this morning from this text is to know this. Now, sometimes application is do this. Sometimes it's believe this. Sometimes it's be changed by this or be convicted in this way. But sometimes we just need to know truths. We just need to lock them down in our minds and, and know them firmly. So know this this morning. Your peace with God comes only from God as you trust in him. Your peace with God, your right standing, your right relationship with God comes only from him as you trust in him. Let me see if I can illustrate this for us and what what faith in God looks like and, and how he credits that to us as righteousness. Literally, in Hebrew and in both Greek, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way that uh, trusting in God looks is this way, that, that we trust either in, that is, um, uh, it's a spatial word. So you, like you take a, uh, a, flower and, or a, a, a flower and you stick it in a vase. You, faith in God, right? It's, it's there, it's in there. Or faith into God, placing faith into God or into Christ, which is to take something that is not found in Christ and to move it into him. Our faith is something that, that, that we want to be secure and securely located. Paul says about uh, Abram in Romans 4.20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Right? But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What Abram does in trusting God is he takes all of his hope for the future all of his trust in everything that God has said would, would take place, uh, every aspect of his life, and he locates it within the most secure place that he can in God. Now, if you have a, an item of personal, personal value, maybe a, a family heirloom or a grandmother's wedding ring, something like that, uh, maybe even a birth certificates, important things that you want to keep safe, you usually put them in a safe in your house or, or even better, in a safe deposit box in the bank. And if you want that document or you want that, that family heirloom to be particularly safe uh, in your home, you don't just put it in a safe in your home. You put it in a safe in your closet. And you don't just put it in a safe in your closet out of, out of uh, sight for other people to see, but you drill that safe into the foundation of your house. So that if a tornado comes by, which doesn't happen very often, or some natural disaster happens, the, the safe won't be swept away in this disaster. You take a safe, you secure it firmly into the foundation uh, of your home. It's then guarded by the closet and guarded by the walls of your house. And there you put all your most valuable things because that is the safest place for them to be. You're putting your valuables in a safe place. Or... Take that illustration the same way. You put them into a safe deposit box at the bank. A safe deposit box, which has two different keys to open it. One held by you, one held by the bank. That one box is welded in place with a whole bunch of other boxes. That's behind a a gate with uh, usually some sort of biometric uh, combination or a lock on it. And then that whole vault uh, at the bank is surrounded by concrete and the external walls of the bank. What God is asking us to do is to take all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust for this life and the next and to place it securely in Jesus, securely in him and and, and not in, in, not in, in, in matters of our, our own machination and not in our own efforts, but in God who made the promise and who secures the, the promise. This is what it looks like to put faith in God, to take everything that you have and, and give it to him. 
And as much as your will and your affections and your, your heart allow you to do this, you, you give it all to him and trust that he will keep it secure. Abram uh, believed the Lord. He trusted God. He placed faith in God. And God said, Abram, because of your faith, because of your trust in me, not just in the things that I've said, but because your trust in me, we're in right relationship. God invites each of us into that same relationship. If we'll place faith in him, in Jesus, his son, who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. We see that God counts in verses one through six, faith as righteousness. And then in verses seven through 21, we see God who makes good on his promises. We see God who makes good on his promises. And we go through this narrative cycle again. The word of the Lord, the response of Abram, the action of the Lord, and a conclusion. In verse 7, the word of the Lord comes to Abram one more time. Saying essentially, remember my promise, Abram. Remember me and remember my promise. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is who I am, Abram. Don't forget it. Remember this. And by the way, I've remembered my promise to you. Remember where I called you from, God says. Remember what I promised to you, the Lord says. I'm going to make good on this, Abram. It's so incredibly important for us to note here that God is a God who does not forget. Now, the Bible regularly repeats the phrase. We're saying in lots of different places, the Lord remembered his promise or the Lord remembered his people. But that nowhere means that God actually forgot uh, about his promise or forgot about his people and had to be reminded. Rather, quite the opposite. It is to remind us who often forget that God never loses a thought, that God never misspeaks when he makes a promise, that, that God's promises and his people are never far from his mind, but regularly at the forefront of all that he is doing. The word of the Lord comes to Abram and says, remember my promise, Abram, remember it. And then we have the response of Abram in verse 8. Blessed, blessed Abram, who with whom I think we all can sympathize at times. The response of Abram asking the Lord, how can I know? How can I know? You've given me this promise, but how shall I know? Verse 8 says, uh, Abram says to the Lord, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this land? How am I to know? Righteous Abram, still trusting the Lord, not doubting, asks yet again a question of assurance. Assure me of your promise, Lord. How will I know that you'll do this thing? What may I have to hold on to for confidence in your promise? We may often be tempted to look again at Abram as one who's doubtful of God's ability to make good on the promises that he's given to Abram. But that's still not what is happening here in this text. Instead, we find faithful Abram once more admitting his human limitation and asking God, Lord, may I just have some indication. May I have some sign that I can look to for confidence in your promise. I'm weak. I'm frail. I struggle to hold on to things that I can't see. So God, can you just give me something to hold on to? Abram's request reminds us that we're all limited in our ability to see uh, where and just how God is working in our lives. We, we don't have that big of a, of, a, of a vision. We don't have that kind of foresight. Abram reminds us that it's not wrong to approach God with your questions. My encouragement to us this morning, though, is this, that when you have questions or when you are unsure of what God is doing, how God will be faithful in your life, that you approach him with your questions, but approach him in faith. 
and not with doubt. Approach him with continued trust in who he is and what he's promised he will do. Continued trust in his faithful nature, not doubting. You may have questions, but try not to doubt the Lord. You may doubt how it's going to come about, but don't doubt the one who's made the promise. The word of the Lord says, Abram, remember my promise. Abram responds, well, Lord, how can I know? How shall I remember? And then we have the action of the Lord in verses 9 and 11. The action of the Lord commanding Abram, prepare a covenant. Prepare a covenant. Just like in verses 4 and 5, the Lord acts to affirm his word to Abram. Heaven, help me. Thanks, buddy. Ooh, can you turn me out of the monitor? I like my own thoughts, but I don't like my own voice that much. Thank you. Oh, man, y'all give Sean a hand. That dude is a beast back there. When sound stuff goes bad, the, those guys in the back, they get, they get all, um, none of the, all of the blame and none of the credit. But I've sat in that seat before, and I know how hard that job is. Our sound guys, our tech guys are awesome back there. Thank you, Sean. So the Lord comes to Abram. Let's let's try to pick back up before I was so rudely interrupted by our technology. The Lord comes to Abram and says, remember my promise. Abram responds, Lord, how can I know? What can I have to hold on to? And the action of the Lord, the Lord comes to Abram and says, prepare a covenant. Get a covenant ready. And just like in verses 4 and 5, the Lord acts to affirm his word to Abram. This time, though, rather than taking Abram outside to look at the stars or pointing him to the sand dunes on the hill to count the grains of sand, he instead instructs Abram to prepare a covenant ceremony. Now, covenants in the ancient Near East period were often sealed by the blood of an animal slaughtered for the occasion. And what would happen is, we've talked about this before on on a few occasions, is um, you just imagine that this uh, center aisle here is uh, like a trench. You dig a trench in the ground, and you would take uh, an animal, or maybe several, like in the case of uh, uh, Genesis 15. You'd take an animal, you would butcher the animal, and you'd cut it in half, like usually maybe a cow or a a lamb or a ram or something like that. So you'd have a side of beef on this side of the trough and a side of beef on this side, and all of the blood of the animal would go in the trough in between, in this in this ditch that you've dug out and then both people who are making this promise to one one another to this covenant to one another will walk through the blood of the covenant they'll walk through the blood of the animal that they've just slaughtered saying something essentially like this may this much and more happen to me if i fail to keep my end of this covenant May I be made like the animals I am, the pieces of the animals that I am walking through if I don't hold up my end of this promise. Covenants are not like contracts. When a party breaks a contract, they pay a fine or they provide some sort of compensation or remuneration for the damages caused by breaking the contract. But covenants can only be broken or dissolved by death. A covenant remains in place until one or both parties die. And if one or either party uh, forsakes the covenant or breaks the covenant by their actions, their death is necessary to cover the broken covenant. So what God is instructing Abram to do here this night in Genesis 15 is way more important than just drawing up some papers for each of them to sign. 
What Abram and God are about to enter into is more than an agreement. More than an agreement for each person to fulfill their covenant duties or, or to pay a fine. They are about to enter into a life and death bond. That's how serious that this is that we're seeing here in Genesis 15. I hope you see the great grace of God, the kindness of God in not requiring Abram to simply trust him apart from any sign of assurance that God would do what he has said. Now, being God, of course, the Lord could have said, sorry, Abe, you just got to trust me. When Abram says, Lord, how shall I know? What can I have to hold on to? How can I be confident in your promise? God could have said, you just got to trust me, Abram. You just got to trust me. But he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't treat Abram and his human limitation that way. Instead, he says, you know what, Abe? You got it. And I'll do more than just point you to the stars this time. I'll I'll do more than just point you to the sand dunes this time. This time, I'll walk through the blood of a covenant with you. I'll make it real serious. And our text concludes in verses 12 through 21, the conclusion where the Lord seals his promise. He seals his covenant with Abram. Now, the way that this chapter ends is perhaps one of the most compelling moments in all of Scripture. I love Genesis 15, and you should too, because it sets a pattern for how God will deal with any covenant that he makes from this day forward. At dusk of that day, Abram likely, uh, the dusk of the day that Abram likely spent butchering all of these animals and preparing this covenant, at dusk of that day, the Lord causes a deep sleep to come over him. And in a vision, the Lord declares to him the promise of land and offspring will indeed have their fulfillment, but not in Abram's lifetime. Instead, there's going to be a period of 400 years, this period that we know uh, of the Israelite uh, slavery in Egypt or the Hebrew slavery in Egypt, wherein Abram's descendants will be slaves in a, another nation. And only after that will they possess the land. This may not be the vision of the future that Abram had hoped for, but it is God's promise. You will have descendants. You will, your your descendants will occupy this land. They will own this land and they will be a blessing to the world. Then after this vision, Abram awakes in the middle of the night to see two things, a smoking oven and a flaming torch appear before him. Now, both of these containers of fire and flame uh, should recall, should bring to our mind, uh, remind to us the the many ways that God appears in the form of fire in the Old Testament, right? The burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, where he appears to Moses, the pillar of fire by which God leads the Israelites through the wilderness period and, and even out of Egypt before that. There's fire and smoke both at the top of Mount Sinai where God is giving the covenant to uh, the law to Moses. We see in several places in the Old Testament that God consuming the sacrifices of his people with fire. We see it in, uh, in, uh, in Exodus and uh, I think also in Leviticus when the, the priests are, uh, are ordained. We see it also uh, in the book of Kings where Elijah has this, um, has this sort of prophetic bout on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and the Lord consumes Elijah's sacrifice with fire. We are meant to understand these fiery figures, the smoking oven and this flaming torch, to be the very physical presence and representation of the Lord that night. Abram wakes up and he sees a physical manifestation of the Lord. And so in that form, as a smoking oven and a flaming torch, the Lord, on his own and all alone, passes between the pieces of the animals prepared for the covenant. Saying essentially, Abram, may this much and more be done to me if I don't keep up my end of this covenant. 
repeating the promise of land and offspring once more as he passes through. Friends, do you see why Genesis 15 is so compelling? This is God's personal guarantee that he will not only fulfill his promise to Abram, but that he alone is the responsible party in this covenant. Abram does not pass through the pieces. Did you see that? Abram's feet are clean. There's no blood on his robe this night. Abram doesn't pass through the pieces. Abram is not responsible for anything in this covenant. God is going to do it all. God is putting his entire holy reputation and character on the line in this promise to Abram. Here he is saying, I am the Lord Abram and I most certainly will do this for you. Know this this morning, Christian. Because God makes good on his promises, you can have assurance of what God has promised to you. Because God makes good on his promise to Abram of offspring and land and blessing to the nations, you can have assurance of the promise of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus, his own son. This is Genesis 15 is an assurance of salvation passage. I didn't know that uh, until later on, earlier on in this week as I was studying. It's not uncommon for me to receive calls, to receive emails from individuals who are asking me as a pastor how they can be sure that they've been saved. I had one just a couple of weeks ago. You might not think that Genesis 15 is such a passage that would give us assurance of our salvation, but it absolutely plays a role in our confidence of being saved by God's grace through faith. I want to see if I can properly link this passage to our confidence, our assurance of salvation in Christ for us this morning. We've already seen in in previous weeks in our study of the life of Abram that the promises of God to Abram are not only for Abram, but for the blessing of the world and that those promises find their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus, as Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 1.20. The promise of land is fulfilled in the preparation of a place for the eternal dwelling of God's people. The promise of offspring is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the descendant of Abram, who is the promised Savior and Messiah. And the promise of blessing to the nations through Abram's offspring is found completed in the offer of eternal life and right relationship with God to Jews and Gentiles alike. All these promises are taken hold of by faith in Jesus Christ, the fruit of God's promise, the descendant of Abram. And in placing our faith in Jesus, placing all of our hope, all of our trust into a safe, uh, drilled into the foundation of a home. Except better, praise the Lord. Placing all our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, God counts us righteous in right standing with him, right relationship with him. He considers us holy and he considers us without sin because we have been united to his son by faith. I understand all this. Many may ask me and have asked me. I get it. I get. Trust Jesus and you'll be saved. I get it. And I thought I was trusting Jesus. I've I've been baptized. I I prayed with a pastor to receive Jesus. I I go to Sunday school. I read my Bible. I pray all the time. but, But I'm just not sure. How can I be really sure that the faith that I had in Jesus is really going to save me when my faith is weak? What do I have to hold on to for assurance that I'm really right with God? You see the connection now to Abram? Abram saying to God, God, it's not that I don't trust you. I just, I need something to hold on to. I'm weak. I'm frail. I'm fragile in this flesh. I need something to hold on to, to know, to know, to know that you're going to do this. 
When my faith is weak, God, what do I have to hold on to for assurance that I'm really right with you? To know that if I die today, I'll I'll really be in your presence. This question, which I'm asked regularly, I've tried to answer a number of different ways. I want to begin answering, I think, from Genesis 15. If this is your question this morning, when my faith is weak, what do I have to hold on to for assurance that I'm really saved, that I'm really right with God? I would point us to two sources of our assurance of salvation by faith in Jesus this morning. First, recall who it is that walks through the blood of the covenant with Abram. God alone. He requires nothing of Abram in this promise. And he commits to fulfilling all the terms of the promise on his own. This is huge. Bible teacher Ray Vanderland says this, when God made a covenant with his people, he did something no human being would have even considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. But when God made a covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. Saying, if this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or for yours, I will pay the price. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. Ray Vanderland says, and at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. Friends, look to the cross. From Genesis 15 and all that's going on in the covenant, now look to the cross. See there hanging for the sins of mankind, but one person. The man, Jesus, in whom, Paul says in Colossians, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is fully God and fully man on that cross, Paul says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The covenant promise of salvation and forgiveness of sins has been paid for fully and accomplished perfectly without your or my assistance. God did it all. He really paid the full price for your sin on the cross by his blood. He really did. That's the promise of scripture. It was his blood that was shed to confirm his promise. It was his death that paid for our inability to be righteous in our sin. This is such good news, church. I hope your heart is warmed this morning. There is nothing that God requires of you to enter into eternal life, but to put your trust into him who has fulfilled his promise to do it all on your behalf. Remember the one who walks through the blood of the covenant when you question, what do I have to hold on to? Remember who made the promise. But then secondly, just as God was gracious to give Abram a sign and a visible reminder of the promise by sealing the promise with a covenant oath to complete it, so also has God sealed the work of salvation for us. He's given you a covenant sign. Again, the Apostle Paul, Jewish rabbi, expert in the Old Testament scriptures, writes in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And whenever Abram was tempted to doubt whether he would inherit the land and have the offspring, those innumerable offspring that God had promised, he had only to remember the guarantee of the Lord's covenant. He had only to go back into his mind to see that image of that smoking oven and that flaming torch passing through the blood of the covenant, the pieces of the animals that were slaughtered there. 
And when you may doubt and you may question whether your salvation by faith alone is secure, you need only to remember that God has given to you His own Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, to make His home in you as a guarantee, as a promise, as as money put down in good faith that He will complete this work of salvation in you. This wonderful text, Genesis 15, reminds us then of two critical truths that we must receive and we must hold on to as Christians. First, that God counts your wholehearted faith in Jesus Christ as your righteousness. Dear friend, there is nothing to prove to God by your works toward Him. There's nothing to prove. there's, There's no work to do to put yourself in a good place with Him. All that work has already been been done. It's been done on your behalf. Only a life, all that remains is a life of obedience to God to be lived in all the joy of knowing that He has credited Christ's righteousness to your soul when you took hold of Christ by faith. Know this today. God counts your wholehearted faith in Jesus as your righteousness. And don't look to your works. Don't look to your deeds. Don't look to your church attendance or your church membership to make you right with God. Look to Jesus, His Son, who sealed a new covenant of God's grace and forgiveness with His own blood and gave you the seal of the Holy Spirit to confirm it. Remember that God counts your faith as righteousness. And secondly, remember that God has given us a certainty of our righteousness by faith. He's given us the seal of the Holy Spirit. He makes good on His promises. And you may ask, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit living in me? Well, again, I would say, have you trusted Jesus with all your heart as the only one who can make you right with God? Are you walking daily in repentance of sin and obedience to Christ? If that's true for you, that's your heart's desire to follow Jesus, not not out of obligation, but out of joy, uh, for uh, the joy that comes from obedience. You can have assurance that the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's changing your heart. He's changing your desires to match that of, of God. He changes your will to match the will of God. So if the will for your life is to be free of sin and to follow Jesus freely, you can have some confidence that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you by faith in Christ. Is your life filled with and do you long for the things that the Bible promises the Holy Spirit will do in you? Do you long to have a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Like Paul says in Galatians 5, are the fruit of the Spirit. Do you want those things? Like not are you just trying to do those things to to fulfill some sort of uh, obligation you, you sense that you have toward God, but you really want to live a life. That is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If that's the case, then you can know the Holy Spirit is bringing those things about in your heart and in your life. Drawing you closer to to Christ uh, through your faith in Him. You can have assurance of your salvation. Genesis 15 tells us again that we can and must trust God who makes good on His promises. And it reminds us just of who this God is. And it shows us that He always makes good on the promises that he makes to his people. So, dear Christian, you who know Christ by faith, be assured of your salvation today because of the one who walked through the blood of the covenant for you and because of the seal of the Holy Spirit, his own own spirit living in you as a down payment on your salvation. And friend, if you don't yet know this assurance of right relationship with God, know that you can have it today simply by turning from your sin, 
turning from wanting to, from living a life that where you do everything that you want to do when you, when you want to do it and how you want to do it and saying, God, I know what kind of mess this life has gotten me into. It's taken me farther from you. It's taken me down roads. I don't want to go. I'm tired of living this way. I know that I, I have a need to be saved from my sin, for my sins to be forgiven. I want to be right with you. And dear friend, you who don't yet trust Christ the way we've been talking about it this morning, trust him that way today. Take your life and place it in Christ, in that safest of places, guarded by the full person and all the promises of God, your creator. Place all of your hope in this life and for the next in Jesus, the son of God, who gave his life for yours and rose again, that you might also have the promise of eternal life. I hope that this passage has assured you, has given you confidence uh, of your salvation today. My prayer for us this morning is that God would just drive that into our hearts this week. We need assurance. We need to know firmly and, and, and be standing on a firm foundation, knowing that we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves, not by works. So the only one who gets any glory is God alone who makes good on his promises. Let's pray.